I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. Welcome to the broadcast. This is Theology Unplugged. Uh, good to see you guys here once again in studio. We're going to continue talking today about uh, Roman Catholicism. And um, uh, hopefully uh, those of you who have joined us have, have benefited from this series so far. I think one of the key things that we're trying to do is not only be unplugged here, guys, but uh, also try to, try to understand. I mean, a lot of people that are listening to this are, are Protestants who are, who are incredibly curious about, you know, what Catholics believe. And so we've said, you know, the best thing that we can do is to, to present it as honestly as we can from the standpoint of explaining it, but also being able to say, this is the reason why we do not believe the same way. Now, some of the things that's interesting, you know, last time we talked about purgatory, and, and I, guess, I guess that I could be a Protestant and believe in some of the stuff that we're talking about here. Um, I mean, it's part of what being a Protestant is, is, is uh, allowing for more diversity and not quite so much dogmatism about every single thing. But in the Catholic Church, you get a big catechism, and it's just filled with everything that you have to believe. And so last time we talked about purgatory, and I suppose you can be a Protestant and believe in purgatory. I know some Protestants who do. C.S. Lewis was one of them we'd talked about beforehand. But we're going to talk here today about uh, the Mass, or uh, sometimes, I mean, we may get uh, specific and talk about the, the mechanism behind the Mass called transubstantiation, and we'll deal with uh, fancy words like real presence and, and uh, the whole idea of what happens to the accidents and the substance of the, the bread and the wine. But I guess, as, as I start off here, guys, correct me if I'm wrong, I could be a Protestant in good standing and believe in a real presence and even believe in some type of transformation, mysterious transformation, right? That wouldn't disqualify me. It would certainly wouldn't automatically make me Catholic, right? you just be like a redheaded stepchild. Yeah. Well, Lutherans believe in the real presence. Yeah. And they're Protestant. Well, don't Reformed believe in the real presence, Let's, just in can a we define, real spiritual presence? You well, spiritual def- presence, yes. You want to define real... We haven't really defined what you mean when you say real presence. What are no, you talking about? No, not going there yet. <laughs> okay. No, define it. Go. Well, uh, okay, but, go ahead, Sam. Well, no. Uh, yeah, why me? <laughs> because you started talking. <laughs> well, <laughs> he starts to talk and then why me? <laughs> if we're going to talk about the, the sense in which Christ is present in the elements of the Lord's table. That's the issue here. And what is actually happening when, the, according to Catholicism, when the priest consecrates the, the bread and the wine and the people receive it. That's, that's what we're focusing here on, upon. So, so in real presence, you are really eating the body of Jesus yeah. and you're really drinking his blood. Right. And this is, this is because... Um, Excuse me. In Catholicism, they take the words of Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood, with a very rigid literal, uh, literalness. And what they believe is that either when the priest calls down upon the elements the presence of the Holy Spirit, what's called the epiclesis, the calling down upon, 
or more likely when the priest pronounces the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood. And there were even disputes in the history of Catholic Church. Is it when he says the Latin word est is, is that when the miracle takes place or is it only at some later point? But in either case, they believe that by virtue of the consecration of the elements of the Lord's table, what they would call the Eucharist, we could call it the Eucharist as well, there is a miracle, a supernatural transformation takes place. And the bread literally becomes the literal flesh of Jesus. And the blood wine literally becomes the literal blood of Jesus. And people immediately ask, well, why then uh, do they not actually taste blood? Mm-hmm. Why does it still look and feel like bread? And Michael, you mentioned this just in passing. It's based on a distinction uh, that's really comes more out of Aristotelian philosophy than anything else uh, between what is called the substance and the accidents or the essence and the accidents. The essence or the substance of the bread and the wine are now and forevermore the flesh and the blood of Jesus. Literally, physio- physiologically, chemically, if we can speak of it in those terms. But the accidents, and we don't mean by that two cars hitting each other in an intersection. The accidents, we mean the external properties, what the bread actually feels like, its texture, its smell, what the wine actually tastes like, remains bread and wine. What it looks like under a microscope. Right. It would always look like bread and wine. It would, it would look as if the physiological properties have remained unchanged. But in the real essence or the substance of those elements, a miracle has occurred. And when a person ingests that, they are literally chewing the flesh of Jesus and they are drinking the blood of Jesus. So, And, and again, it's, a, it's an interesting, by the way, just a little bit of a side note here. Um, the question has often been asked, why that distinction? Why would God not allow people to actually taste and feel literal flesh and blood as they ingest the elements of the Eucharist? And there were basically two explanations given. One was what they called the horror of blood. They thought it would be so offensive to people that they would stay away from the Eucharist, and they don't want people to do that. They want them to come. But would people regularly partake if they literally were tasting human blood and chewing human flesh? Uh, and then secondly, because they say if, if you can actually taste it and smell it and chew it, there's no need for faith. You need faith to believe that although it smells and tastes and chews like bread and wine, it really is the blood of Jesus. And so it's a challenge, in essence, that God has presented to his people. I'm, I'm giving you these elements. This is literally the body and blood of my son. But it takes faith to know that. If it really tasted like it and smelled like it, it would eliminate the need for faith. Doctrinally speaking, whenever you talk about Roman Catholic theology, there's not necessarily a hierarchy. In other words, it's not like this is something you have to believe and these other things we've been talking about are secondary and you can choose whether you want to believe them or not. And so uh, whenever I talk about this, the, the, the mass... I'm not talking about in the sense of hierarchy in a theological system. However, I think it's very important to point out that from the, the person, the, the most Roman Catholics themselves, if you were to ask them, who cares, you know, about the mass, that big deal, whether you believe in it or not, big deal, whether you participated in it or not, they would pause and say, no, this is, this is it. 
everything revolves around this. I mean, from the standpoint of my own spirituality, from the standpoint of where I connect with Christ, from the standpoint of how I am becoming more and more justified, the primary source the primary, if you will, bread of life is this mass, is it not? Is this not? I mean, I, I don't want us to pass by this without seeing how central this is to the Roman Catholic system, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's more. My grandmother, for instance, uh, she until her health was too bad went to mass every single day um, because uh, you know for for Protestants going to church is a big deal. I mean, it, it is. You know, it's something that you do every week and and you go and you worship God together and you fellowship and um, but you know to to miss church once in a while. You know, you you had a tough week and you just want to stay home or whatever. You know, it's it's not the end of the world. But uh, because it, we don't attach so much to it. But but a Roman Catholic, they do attach a lot more to it. This is, you know, we can get into a little bit more of exactly what happens during Mass and everything. But, but this is a way to, on a weekly basis, connect and receive, basically, uh, receive the cleansing of Jesus on a weekly basis. And so to miss Mass on a weekly basis is to miss uh, a substantial amount of how you walk through this life as a Christian. And missing Mass, I mean, the, I, I brought this up last time, but missing Mass without a valid excuse is a mortal sin. That's how important it is. Yeah. You don't just decide, you know, you can miss Mass. Now, you don't have to go every day, but, you know, exactly. once a week at yeah. least, and you can't miss it. And by partaking in the body and blood of Christ, you are becoming more and more Christ-like. So if I was to miss it my entire life, I would probably, as we talked about last time, spend more quote-unquote time in purgatory, right? More duration, as Sam put it last time. Uh, but the more I attend Mass, the more I partake of the body and blood of Christ, the more my relationship with Christ becomes real, from the Catholic standpoint, and the less time, or, or I guess the, the more pure I am and ready for the beatific vision, the, the vision of God that I will see. But is that the only thing that the Catholic believes he or she is obtaining by partaking of the Eucharist? What else is there? How about the forgiveness of sins? Okay. I mean, that's, that's the key element, I would think. Uh, I mean, I just, let's think for a moment. I just described a moment ago the mechanics, and again, they don't like that because they want to say it's a mystery, and I understand that, but the mysterious mechanics of transubstantiation, how regular bread and wine become literally the flesh and blood of Jesus. You said, Michael, I suppose a Protestant could believe that happens and still remain Protestant. There's nothing really seriously at stake here other than the fact that we may have misinterpreted some text. In other words, our eternal life is not somehow hanging suspended mm -hmm. on whether we accept or reject transubstantiation. Mm -hmm. I reject it, um, but I don't think that somebody who accepts it is for that reason in eternal jeopardy. But the question is, what is it that the Catholic Church teaches is being made available? What's happening in the Mass? Is it just a, a transubstantiation of the elements, a supernatural miracle, or is there something salvific, saving that occurs in it? And maybe the best way to answer that is to let Catholics speak for themselves. So can I read from the, uh, may I read from the Council of Trent? No, we only do non-Catholic sources and uh, build strawmen. Right? <laughs> Here's what the Council of Trent says. Okay. This is in uh, session 22, chapter 2. You gotta, I'm going to kind of 
as I go along, I'll, I'll we'll try to interpret because the language is 17th, 16th century language. That's where he builds the straw man. Yeah, oh, there you go. Way to go. They say, quote, And since in this divine sacrifice, referring to what just happened when the priest consecrated the elements, which is performed in the Mass, the same Christ is contained and is bloodlessly immolated, that is, is bloodlessly offered up as a sacrifice, who once offered himself bloodily upon the cross. And the Holy Council, referring to the Council of Trent, teaches, now here's, this is important, and the Holy Council teaches that this sacrifice is propitiatory. In other words, there's propitiation, there's the satisfaction and the appeasing of God's wrath in the offering up of the sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. And that by its means, if we approach God contrite and penitent with a true heart and a right faith and with fear and reverence, we may obtain mercy and grow in seasonable succor. For the Lord, appeased by the oblation of the sacrifice. Now, again, here's God the Father who's appeased, who's satisfied by the offering of this sacrifice in the Mass. Granting grace and the gift of repentance remits even great crimes and sins. There is one and the same victim and the same person who now offers by the ministry of the priests who then offered himself upon the cross, the mode of offering only being different. Now I'm going to skip down to session 22, uh, canon 3. Here's what the Council of Trent says. If anyone shall say that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving or a bare commemoration of the sacrifice made upon the cross, and that it is not propitiatory. In other words, if anyone shall say that the sacrifice of the Mass does not satisfy the wrath of God, or that it only profits the receiver, and that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead for their sins, pains, satisfactions, and other wants, let him be accursed. Now, that paragraph is pretty profound. Mm -hmm. If you deny that the sacrifice in the Mass is propitiatory, and if you say that it's only for you, the pun partaking, and that it can't also be partaken in order that those who have died, that their sins, their pains, and their other wants be alleviated and diminished, you stand under the curse of God. Now, that was Trent, 16th century. The question is, does that still hold for Roman Catholicism today? Has there been development or change? Because that sounds fairly heretical to me. Yeah. On the surface of it, yeah. uh, so that might be a. It gives us clues that the language in the catechism is so reverent, and you're right, Michael. They do call it the 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 um, the liturgy of liturgies. It is the sacrament of sacraments. Uh, they call it quote the source and summit of the Christian life. They refer to it as the sum and summary of our faith, uh, and they call it, they say the church's whole liturgy quote finds its center and most intense expression in the celebration of the sacrament. And it's pretty interesting. And then we say, well, why? And they say, well, because, quote, by this sacrament, we unite ourselves to Christ. This is how we're united to Christ is through this sacrament. And then they quote St. Ignatius, who called it, quote, the medicine of immortality. Yeah, well, because at least the way that I think of it is a Protestant is going to view the blood of Jesus on the cross as as the act of Jesus on the cross is of such magnitude that is like a nuclear bomb that goes off in someone's life, vaporizing every past, present, and here's the key, past, present, and future sin. 
So, so on the cross, once we've put our trust in Jesus, all of our sin is covered in the blood of Jesus. But the way that a Roman Catholic is viewing this is more, instead of that blood being put on me, that blood is put in a tank that is in the church. And that the mass every week is going up and accessing that, that grace, that blood of Christ, and dispensing it on all the people who are in the mass, covering uh, the the mass doesn't cover future sin the mass covers past sin and so you are continually coming back to the mass in order to have your sins the not not by the blood of the church but the blood of Jesus you know so that's where it's it's a good thing but but where where I disagree with it is it forces someone to always be continually coming back to mass which I use that word force which you know some would say well I joyfully go to mass but still this idea that you are never sure if the blood of Jesus has covered all the sins that you've committed and and that comes to last rites. You know, if you're in the military, you've just been wounded, you got to quickly have a priest come and perform the mass in a certain way right there so that your sins, since you were last at mass, can be covered uh, so that you can enter purgatory with, with a less amount of sin. And, and, and you're never really free in the blood of Christ where, and, and that's part of the, the mass is that you are coming back and they will, you know, Roman Catholics will view this, and I was Roman Catholic for a, a, a while, will view this as a, as a freeing, wonderful, joyful time uh, because you are, you know, you're happy that your sins have just been covered since the last time you were at mass. Uh, but but, but it's, the mass doesn't cover mortal sins, only venial sins. That's right. Well, yeah. So that's why the, there's just not one sacrament. There are, there are seven sacraments. Uh, in order to, and to so, so it does something like what we were talking about last time. Is it just alleviates the time in purgatory, basically the temporal punishment? It's taking the edge off of it's. It's getting rid of a lot of the sins on a continual basis, needing you to to continually come back to the priest. You know, confession is a part of this as well. Uh, but the mass is the time that the collective uh, local body are gathered to receive. Uh, the blood of Christ, and that's why there is, Jesus is on the cross. Uh, for you know, most uh, Protestants will have crucifixes uh, in the church, but they're always empty because Jesus isn't there anymore. Sam, uh, tell so. us about the different views that are out there on on the um, Eucharist. And you said it's proper to use the name Eucharist, which mm-hmm. just means Thanksgiving, right? right? So let's use that in a generic way. And what are the different views that are held with regard to the Eucharist that we, we've got the Catholic transubstantiation, mm-hmm. the substance is transformed. What else is it represented? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about the Eucharist. Uh, a lot of Protestants knee-jerk when they hear the word. I love the word because mm-hmm. it's based on the Greek verb eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. And that is used in the New Testament accounts of the Lord's table. So there's nothing uniquely Catholic about the word Eucharist. Um, especially our Anglican friends, you know, typically use it in the Episcopalians. Um, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church also believes in transubstantiation, but they would never use the word. They don't like the word because uh, they think it it is a it is dep- it deprives the Eucharist of the mystery of what actually happens. But they do believe, as do Roman Catholics, that when you ingest those elements, you are ingesting the literal body and blood of Jesus. So the Orthodox would would affirm with Catholics that notion, even though they wouldn't use the term transubstantiation. Well, at that point, we've got, what, three out of every four Christians, or at least that proclaim the name Christ, believing in this real transformed presence. Mm -hmm. 
And then there are Lutherans, uh, who many of whom don't like the word consubstantiation, but it, it is, I think it's a helpful term, which simply means that uh, Luther affirmed that the literal body and blood of Jesus were present in the elements, in, under, around, through, and with the elements, but the elements did not undergo any kind of physiological transformation. They still remain literal body, a literal bread, literal wine. But with the consecration of the elements, the literal body and blood of Christ is present in, so that when you take that piece of bread or you drink that cup, you are ingesting the literal body and blood of Jesus. Um, because it's it somehow commingles with the physical elements of bread and wine, kind of like a sponge soaks up water, a little water bit. Yeah, the in with right around. Yeah, something of that sort. It's kind of hard. Again, a lot of uh, Lutherans as well as Catholics and Orthodox again would protest the the attempt to try to you know provide some sort of physiological mm-hmm. account that that diminishes the mystery of the supernatural. Then there is, uh, at the far end of the other spe- uh, of the spectrum, uh, the Zwinglian uh, view, uh, Holrach Zwingli, who um, uh, was one of the great Protestant reformers, argued that there was no presence of any sort, that, uh, in fact, using, uh, we read a moment ago from the Council of Trent, and they denounced the notion that it's a bare commemoration. Well, that's basically what Zwingli said, that these elements are strictly and solely a symbol they are always and only the physical elements of bread and wine, and they memorialize or signify or point to the body and blood of Jesus. But the body and blood of Jesus are in no sense present uh, in the elements. That's most Baptist, most... Uh, yeah, most Baptist in the most... Free church, mm-hmm. Protestants. Right. And then there is a mediating position between Lutheran consubstantiation and the Zwinglian view, and that's the Reformed or the Calvinistic view, which argues that there is a very real presence of Christ in the elements, but it's a spiritual presence. And it goes above and beyond what we might call omnipresence. You know, we know that Christ through the Holy Spirit is present everywhere, but in the elements of the Lord's table, he is somehow uniquely, especially extraordinarily, powerfully present to bring a sanctifying influence on the human soul, not a saving influence. It's not as if our sins are being forgiven when we partake of the elements. It's not as if God is being satisfied, his wrath being appeased, but the Holy Spirit is exerting a sanctifying, transforming influence on us through the spiritual presence of Christ in the elements. So Jesus is the risen Christ as omnipresent deity is in some mysterious way uniquely and powerfully present in the elements, not physiologically in the sense that the elements elements change, but spiritually he is there. So it's not a bare commemoration. They're not merely physical elements that memorialize. They are the means or the the vehicle through which Christ becomes extraordinarily present in exerting a sanctifying influence on the people of God. Is that the view you guys hold at Bridgeway? Is That's the, the view that I would view? hold, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the spiritual presence? Yes. So you would hold to a real presence, just spiritual presence. Exactly. Okay. And maybe that's uh, some of the verses attached to, you know, don't eat this in an unworthy way, things like that, where Zwingy might be like, well, that would be, you know, if you're just not 
remembering it properly. It does seem like there's something more more than meets the yeah. eye. There. Yeah, and I'm, and let's let's be real careful. Here. We we we're laboring to be fair to our Roman Catholic friends. I want to be fair to my fair to my Baptist friends mm. because I think they would protest if they heard somebody suggest they believe the that this Lord's Supper is a bare commemoration. <laughs> I think they argue as well that there's a sanctifying influence in partaking of the Lord's table. That when we think and meditate and focus on what these elements represent, there is a sanctifying effect on us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are changed. We fall ever more in love with Christ. We hate sin more than we did before. The Spirit of God exerts a powerful influence on us when we think deeply on the uh, symbolic significance of the elements. So, all my Southern Baptist friends out there, I I, I don't want to suggest that you don't believe there's a sanctifying reality, but it's it's not the same as the Reformed tradition. The Reformed tradition really does want to affirm an extraordinary and unique presence of the risen Christ in the elements in some spiritual sense in a way that's not necessarily the case in any other experience that you would, might have in a, in a church context. And you might be listening to this right now and thinking, why are they making such a big deal of you know, just a little thing that happens at church? And you know, if, you, if you aren't uh, reading a lot of theology and things, it, it might seem like we're making a mountain out of a molehill in some ways, uh, because it's like, you know, that's just, that only happens once a month at my church and only lasts for two minutes. And so why are you talking so much about well, it? Well, in the, in the but, Southern Baptist, it's once a quarter. It's not yeah, even yeah. once a month. Uh, <laughs> but, but one of the reasons, too, is that, uh, first of all, Jesus uh, spent a lot of time, I mean, you think about uh, what someone does at the end of their life on earth usually shows priorities, and he spent time uh, doing this with his disciples right before uh, he was going to pay for the sins of the world. But then also, uh, this does bring up some massive Trinitarian Christological considerations as well, because if we are believing that Jesus has only one body and even has one body now that Thomas stuck his finger in after the resurrection, uh, Jesus is standing in front of him that uh, in order to eat his physical body, and that is happening all over the planet at the same time on a Sunday by Roman Catholics, that we start saying, well, how can Jesus's body be all over the planet at the same time? And so, I mean, there are a lot of, and that doesn't fully discount that, but there are, uh, one of the reasons is Jesus puts a lot of priority here, but it does, this is a, a major uh, things of trying to think through how exactly is this happening, and we have to recognize if we were all making up a religion from scratch, we would not include the Eucharist. I don't think you know, we wouldn't say, "Hey, eat this and drink this, and this is his body, this is his blood," because it was it was strange. I think for people to hear Jesus say that from his very mouth, and uh, and I think when you know even to the point that it's like we were we were accused of being cannibals because we would eat human flesh, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it would have been an easy thing to just say, "Oh, never mind. Let's not do this because it's uh, Christianity will grow sl- faster if we get rid of this." But we have held this as a dear. All of us have passion about this because we do recognize this was God's idea. And, uh, and this is a, a dear, sweet moment in any church service across the planet by Christians. Absolutely. I mean, we believe, practice it at Bridgeway, um, that something very unique and special and extraordinary is happening when a believing Christian man or woman uh, takes that those physical elements and ingests them. Um, obviously, there is an analogy 
uh, comparison, just as we, by faith, ingest Jesus spiritually. We rely upon him for spiritual sustenance and strength and energy. Uh, well, I, was, I should do it the other way. Just as I, I'm going to go to lunch today, I'm going to ingest physical food. I'm dependent upon it to sustain me, to nourish me. When we ingest the elements, we are spiritually ingesting Christ in a very unique and, and, and special way. For example, I mean, we're sitting around a table right now. We have open Bibles. We're talking about theology. We prayed before we started. Um, but we're not experiencing the unique and extraordinary presence of Christ in the same way that we would if we were a small church and we were celebrating the Lord's table. There's something unique about the ingesting of those elements in faith. We are experiencing and participating. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, we are communing with, he uses koinonia. We are entering into an intimate fellowship with Jesus in the partaking of those elements in a way that is different from what we're doing here, just dialoguing on the topic. And we don't want to lose that dimension. Well, and let's not forget the sad truth is the reason why we have to pause and explain this in such detail is because we've grown up. Children don't need this explained to them. The Eucharist is very intuitive. Baptism is very intuitive. Buried with Christ in the waters of baptism, raised in newness of life, the cleansing of sin, these waters cleansing me, being washed clean of my sin, and, and commemorating that. Uh, we're embodied. God made us embodied. Uh, and and I think that's, there's always a grain of Gnosticism in us that that is, uh, you know, why do we do these things? Is it because they're magic? No. You know, we do these things because we're embodied. God made the world. He made it corporeal. And so in his love and graciousness, he's created for us things to do as his church that are physical and embodied because we're embodied. It's not the physical's bad and the immaterial is more spiritual. And if we were super spiritual, we wouldn't need to do physical things in our worship of him. He's made our worship embodied because he made us embodied. Well, I think that we're definitely going to have to devote another program to this because I want to specifically talk about the justification for this, you know, and talk about it from a historical standpoint. Where does it come from in history? Who believed in the real presence? When did transubstantiation come about? But also from a biblical perspective, because I think we'll find something quite different than with purgatory, where we said, basically, you have to rely on tradition. In the Bible, there does seem to be at least from the Roman Catholic standpoint, quite a bit of justification for the belief in transubstantiation and even to the point where, as we talked about earlier, your eternal destiny hangs upon uh, your view of this and your partaking in it. And one other thing that we definitely have to address, and that is if we go back to what I read a moment ago from the Council of Trent, It sounds as if, in the language of the 16th century, that they were asserting that in the Mass, the sacrifice of Christ is being repeated over and over and over again. And that accusation and charge has weighed heavily on the Roman Catholic Church over the centuries. When you read the Catholic Catechism, and maybe next time we get together, we'll read some specific statements from it. The Catholic Catechism very self-consciously avoids any concept of repetition. Mm-hmm. In fact, they deny it. Mm-hmm. And they talk about a representation of the sacrifice of Christ. Yeah. And we need to talk about that uh, out of fairness to what Roman Catholics believe. And we need to talk about, uh, maybe we can do this when we, at another time as well, 
is the Catholic Catechism uh, reversing the declarations of Trent? Is it changed as it developed? Uh, Are they, in essence, saying, no, Trent really kind of steered off course here. We're trying to bring greater clarity, which obviously bears upon the question of tradition and authority. But um, we do need to ask the question, do Roman Catholics believe that the cross of Christ is being repeated multiple times each time the Mass is offered? If you read the Catechism, the answer is no. If you read Trent, it seems the answer is yes. So we need to talk about that. Well, and I'd like to add, you know, again, the language of the Catechism is Holy Mass is this liturgy in which the mystery of salvation is accomplished. Uh, In fairness to them, if I'm trying to be sympathetic to so many acquaintances of mine that have made a movement towards Catholicism and we're scratching our heads going, what? What's compelling them? Well, we could spend hours talking about those things. But in some sense, Sam himself just said that even in our views on the Eucharist that we believe are biblical, there's something related to salvation happening. Sanctification. It's a part of our process of sanctification, and it's aided by our obedience of Christ's command to observe the Eucharist. So again, it's this reminder that they're so close and yet a thousand miles off course. You know, Scripture does talk about salvation in a past, present, and future tense. The question is, what happened in the past tense and what's happening in the present tense and what's happening in the future tense. We call those justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so there, again, seems to be constant confusion in the minds of Roman Catholics as to what's happening in the present tense when the Bible describes salvation happening in the present versus what has been accomplished with finality in the past. Mm -hmm. All right, guys, next time we'll pick this back up. Uh, Please remember that uh, we love to hear your comments and to see your comments. So uh, best way to do that is to jump on iTunes and just leave a comment there. Tell people what you think about the show. We regularly read those comments, so they're encouraging for us. As long as they're encouraging. If it's discouraging, don't put any comments. Uh, we don't we don't accept those, and they will not make it into our <laughs> they're anath- They're anathema. They are. Um, and uh, remember, this is a listener-supported broadcast. We uh, welcome your donations and your gifts to help this carry on, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.